And now hear God's holy word from Ephesians chapter 5, continuing our study in Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. O God of all the earth, we come before your throne today, and we ask for you to speak to us, to impart words of life and wisdom. And I ask that you would admonish us by your spirit, that you would exhort us and encourage us on to righteousness. You have spoken to us because you love us, and you have given us your word because you want us to have life. And so, Father, may we not ignore you or reject what you have said, but may we embrace it and live it. Father, as I deliver these things to your people today, uh, give me clarity of thought, give me uh, soundness, and, and help me to articulate these things clearly. Father, strengthen us all by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. People of God, it's been said that you could summarize the story of the Bible with the phrase, boy meets girl. The Bible begins with a wedding. It begins with Adam in a garden sanctuary and God presents his wife Eve to him. It starts, our story, humanity's story, starts in the Bible with a wedding and it ends with a wedding. It ends with the marriage, the great feast of, of Jesus and his bride and their, and their wedding feast. And, and throughout, in between those two great weddings, you see over and over and over this theme, boy meets girl, over and over. And boy meets girl usually at a well. Men are always meeting women at wells throughout the scriptures. Isaac meets Rebekah at a well. Jacob meets Rachel at a well. Moses meets Zipporah at a well. One of the reasons is that that's, that's where a lot of women hang out. So young men, if you want to find a girl, go hang out at a well. I don't, I don't know if we have any today, but uh, so uh, good luck with that. But each time that a man meets a woman at a well, a wedding results. So then in, in John's gospel, when you see uh, Jesus go meet a woman in Samaria by a well, if, you've, if you're reading this for the first time, you think, oh my goodness, they're going to get married because it's, it's the pattern. Well, does Jesus get married? No, he doesn't marry that woman. But they do talk about marriage, right? Marriage is at the center of their conversation. Well, what is this connection in the scriptures between women and wells? Remember, Adam got his wife Eve in Eden. Eden was a well-watered place. There were four rivers flowing out of Eden to nourish all of the earth, and a mist went up, and it, and it watered the land. Eden is a place 
nourished by the water that God gave to the garden. Eden is a sanctuary where God communes with man and woman. God walks with man and woman in this garden sanctuary, this well-watered place. So throughout the scriptures, when we get these various scenes at wells, we're recalling Eden each time. Any place with a well would have been a kind of oasis. Remember, Abraham went through the land of Canaan, and what did he do? He dug wells, and he built altars. So every place, there's wells, and there's altars, and there are trees. Each one of these little places that Abraham sets up is a miniature sanctuary. It's a miniature Eden that he builds all over the land of Canaan as he takes dominion and begins to plant God, plant his feet in the land that God is going to give his people. Well, see, every, every one of these wells, there's trees, there's a place for worship, there's water, miniature representations of the Garden of Eden. So every covenant union that God makes between man and woman, and these meetings at wells are significant because each one calls us back to the first marriage between Adam and Eve. And it reminds us of God's institution of marriage, God's organization of marriage. And it calls us to remember as well that the roles of man and woman the duties of husbands and wives, the roles of the sexes that God created, and he only created two, correct? He created male and female. How many genders are there? Well, there are three genders, right? Masculine, feminine, and neuter. But that has nothing to do with people, right? When you're talking about gender, you're talking about Latin nouns, right? Only Latin nouns have gender. Remember that. People uh, are male and female. There are two sexes that God has created uh, for mankind. And the roles of the sexes have not changed since creation. Society has changed, but God hasn't changed and creation hasn't changed. So Paul wants us to know this as he now moves to talk about marriage in his letter to the Ephesian Christians. He points us back to Genesis as the foundation for what he writes about the duties of husbands and wives to each other, living as they were created with, with male responsibilities and female responsibilities, with attending gifts and callings. So when we read Paul's words, who by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit says that the husband is the head of the wife, it's important to remember that everything we read here is not chauvinism, it's creationism. Everything here is embedded in creation, not in uh, some uh, effort to subjugate or oppress women. Remember what we saw last week, following Paul's train of thought in this letter, if you'll recall, uh, from one perspective, and I could be totally wrong on this, but, but from one perspective, it appears that what Paul is doing is he's walking us through the events of Mount Sinai, pulling things from what Moses did there with God's people at Sinai and putting them in a new covenant perspective and, and a new covenant context. So Paul walked us through the commandments, right? Uh, just as Moses delivered God's commandments to the people. He talks about, Paul talks about the church as the new house of God. Well, just as God gave Moses plans for the tabernacle, so Paul talks about the church as this new temple, this new tabernacle that God is building up with Jesus as the cornerstone. Paul says we reflect God's light. Well, at Sinai, Moses was reflecting the glory of God. It shone off of his face. Paul warns us against riotous, idolatrous worship. He says, don't be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Well, what's that a reference to? Well, it's very, it seems very clear to me that that's, that's at least calling back to our memories the, the terrible events with the golden calf. 
And so just as, as Moses walked God's people through these things, so now Paul takes these very same steps and he walks them through in a new covenant context uh, with, the, with the church at Ephesus. And one other thing God did at Sinai was he set up order for society, government for Israel, and, and he established law and he established order in the land, uh, in the people of, of Israel. So now Paul is going to talk about the way that God has ordered human life in, in giving us husbands and wives and giving us parents and children and giving us masters and servants. So now we get to that section where Paul is, is referring back to and reminding us of our duties in our roles and in our relationships. John Calvin said in his commentary on the, the uh, Gospel of John, Calvin said, the effect of the gospel is the restoration of order to the world. The gospel brings order to the world. The gospel brings the world from chaos to compliance with God. And God is orderly. And so his ordering of, of human life is his establishment of human authority. And because all authority comes from God, everyone with authority is accountable to God for how they use that authority, how they exercise that authority. So in every chain of command that God has established on earth, there is mutual subjection. In fact, that's the phrase that kicks off this section. Back in verse 21, uh, Paul says, you submit to one another in the fear of God. That's, that's the first thing, that we all submit to each other. In every chain of command, there's mutual subjection. In Christian societies, in Christian homes, in Christian organizations, there are no tyrants allowed. There's no place for despots. The king serves his people by giving himself for his people. The husband subjects himself to his wife by dying for her. He has to crucify himself for her. The wife subjects herself to her husband by obeying and respecting him and following his lead. Children subject themselves to their parents. Parents subject themselves to their children by wiping their backsides and wiping their noses and teaching them and, and getting down on their hands and knees and serving their children. So we don't do this by flattening out the roles, right? No, we act in terms of the hierarchy that God has established. The husband serves his wife as a husband. You don't become a wife to serve your wife. You serve her as a husband. The mother leads her sons as a mother and, and she serves as a mom. So all these relationships get restored by the gospel and these relationships become the foundation of the kingdom. So Paul begins here by talking about women and their duties and then he moves to talk about men and their duties. And, and as he does this, he directs us back to Genesis and he adds this before he's done. He says, you know, I'm talking about a great mystery here. This is all about Jesus and his church. This is the third mystery that Paul has told us about in his letter to Ephesus. The first mystery that he uncovered and he reveals to us is the mystery of the way that God has brought heaven and earth together in Jesus. The second mystery was how he has brought together Jew and Gentile in the church. And now the third mystery, we get it. The third mystery is how God, brought the, the, how God is bringing the church and Jesus together in this marriage relationship. And remember, when we use the word mystery, and when the scriptures use the word mystery, it's not like it's some complex puzzle that you'll never figure out and you'll never, you'll never understand. A mystery in biblical terms is something that was once hidden, but now has been revealed as a result of the incarnation of Jesus. 
and his work. So, so now Paul is saying, we didn't understand all of this before, but now this has been revealed to us. All these things were once hidden in the secret counsels of God, but now he has revealed them to all of us. And this part, this, this, this marriage conversation is part of this third mystery. Well, as you know, marriage has always been full of deep meaning, full of complexity from creation forward. There are all these things that men and women don't understand about each other. There are all these things that we uh, seemingly can't understand about each other. Like, why is it when we go to a restaurant and there's a table of six or seven women next to us, they're all talking at the same time and they all understand each other. Uh, There's some magic power going on there that I don't understand, some superpower. How do you ladies do that? How do you all talk and hear each other at the same time? It's incredible. And I'm sure there are some mysterious things about men, maybe. I think we're pretty simple, but I'm sure we can be hard to figure out as well. Getting man and woman to understand each other and getting man and woman to work together and to live together in harmony is always tricky. It's like the way that we try to build a calendar off the sun and the moon. The sun gives us seasons and the moon gives us months and, and the sun gives us years and trying to keep those two things in sync and to try to, try to line them up. It's, it's always, we're always having to add, you know, leap days and, and leap seconds and, and we're, they never quite sync up. So man and woman are always, it, it's seemingly moving in, in, in uh, not exactly synchronous orbits. We, we are difficult to sync up, but... We receive revelation and we receive meaning and things come to light because of Jesus. And what Paul is telling us here that the key to understanding marriage, the key to understanding man and woman, husbands and wives and our relationship to each other, the key to understanding this is this wonderful truth that Jesus has a bride. Let that sink in for just a minute. I know you think you know that. And I, I, I know you think, oh, I've heard this a million times. The bride of Jesus is the church, right? He's the head, she's the body. But think of it, Jesus has a wife. That's the, that's the, that's the core here. That's the, that's the big truth. And so whatever Jesus does for his wife, men must do for their wives. Whatever the church does for Jesus, that's how wives serve their husbands. So I'm asking you, do you have a theological problem with Jesus being the head of the church? You have a problem with that. Is that difficult for you to swallow? Is that difficult for you to conceive of, that, that Jesus is the head of the church? No, of course not. I hope that's not a problem for you. Do you have a problem? Do you have a theological problem with the church loving and respecting her bridegroom? Do you have a problem with that? With the church loving and respecting Jesus? No. So we look to Jesus and we look to the church and now we can say, ah, so, so this is what it means. This is what it's supposed to look like. Well, let's hear again what the apostle says, and we'll, he'll drive us to look at creation, and he'll drive us to look at redemption to understand our responsibilities to each other as husbands and wives. So here again what the apostle says in verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he is savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Why does Paul address wives first? It seems like he ought to address the men first because, you know, Adam was created first, right? So why don't you start with men? Well, he addresses wives first because he has just said once again that everyone is supposed to submit to each other. Everyone must live in subjection to the other and esteem others more highly than themselves. And so the primary duty of all humanity is submission. 
That's the primary duty of all of us, is submission first to God and then to each other. So the wifely aspect of humanity is primary. All of us are the bride of Christ as the church. And I always want to underscore, because I, I saw this video one time at a, of a men's conference where the, where the guys were singing and the, the, the worship leader was leading them and saying, you, you are the bride of Christ. You be the, and I'm, no, I'm, I'm not the bride. Dwayne isn't the bride of Christ. It's very hard for me to think of myself in those terms. We're not individually the bride of Christ, but we are collectively as the church, the bride of Christ. That's an essential distinction to make. All of us are the bride of Christ and all of us are subject to Christ as his bride. All of us are submissive to him. The church is not the husband of Christ, but the bride of Christ. And so at the bottom, all of us are in a position of submission. And so what Paul says to wives here, he's directing to the whole church. All of the church is in this position of submission. Now, men have this dual role where we have to keep this balanced and we have to keep this in perspective. Men, we are called to be part of the bride of Christ. And at the same time, as we're submitting to Jesus being part of his bride, at the same time, we turn and we reflect Jesus to our wives. So we have this dual responsibility in this dual role. But women have, have the primary representation of the church. And so Paul makes these two appeals to wives. One he draws from the story of creation. One he draws from the story of redemption. Adam in creation, in Genesis, Adam was Eve's head. Adam was created first and God gave his instruction to Adam. And then Adam's duty was to communicate that instruction to Eve. Adam's responsibility in regard to the garden as well was to what? Remember what, what was his job? He was to dress it and keep it. And keeping means not just, you know, uh, hoard it, but to protect it. That's what the word keep means. He was to protect it. And so then God brings Eve along and he puts her in the garden. And so by extension, his duty is to dress her, to glorify her. Adam sings over her when God walks his bride down the aisle and hands him uh, hands her to him. He glorifies her. He adorns her. He dresses her. And he is also to keep her. He is to protect her. Well, you know, Adam failed in epic fashion to protect her, but God's commission of man hasn't changed. And so for man to be able to do what he is called to do for his wife, to lead her in the worship of God with her alongside of him as his helper, to glorify her and to protect her in order for him to do his job, she has to respond. She is called to receive and respond to his efforts. His, his role is that of initiator. Her role is, is that of eager and joyful recipient of his affectionate leadership. Now, Satan immediately raises all kinds of objections in your heads, especially to ladies. And, and when we start talking about these things, you start thinking about all these exceptions and you start thinking about but, 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 because our society has this built-in repulsion to the Word of God, because our society also has a built-in repulsion to marriage. You understand that as well, right? Our, our culture hates marriage. It doesn't, why does Satan hate marriage? Well, because it produces godly offspring. We don't want any more godly offspring, so let's kill marriage. Let's confuse men. Let's make men think they're women. Let's make women think they're men. So we have this repulsion to God's word. And, and so you immediately start to raise objections against God's word. 
and you start thinking in terms of, you know, secular feminism and think maybe, you know, I really don't need a man to lead me or tell me what to do and you know you've got this kind of this knee-jerk response or, or maybe you soften it a little bit maybe you say you know what I would love to submit to a good man I, I would love to have a good man I'd love to follow a good man but but you don't know this jerk that I live with you know this this knucklehead that I live with he is so stupid let me tell you he is so sinful and insensitive I, I'd love to I'd love to follow a good man but I ain't got a good man right? That's the, that's the response you have. Okay, I hear you. But you know what else? I don't know of any arranged marriages, in our congregation at least. Were there any shotgun weddings? Do we need to have a conversation? Were, did, were any of you forced to get married? So when you said, I do, at the altar, I assume that you meant that, right? Okay, if that's, if that's true, he's your husband. And he may be a dummy, but he's your dummy <laughs> that God gave you. He's your dummy. And what God requires you to do is to respond to and receive his efforts to love you and to nurture you, even if it's ham-handed, even if he doesn't get it, even if he's being hard-headed. It's amazing how transformative, loving, graceful patience can be for a man. We've all seen Christian women married to these unbelieving men, and through her patience, he turns and repents. We've seen that. Now, we always have to, we, we have to say this. It's not, it's not an objection because this is something that God addresses, something God talks about. If your husband is being hateful to you and being abusive to you or the children, if he requires you to sin, you appeal to a higher authority. You must not submit to wicked, sinful behavior. His authority is not absolute. His judgment is not final. God's law is always higher. And God has placed higher courts in the church and he's placed higher courts in the state that you appeal to. So be subject to your husband and everything, but the context is only in Christ. So you don't do something sinful. Jesus is the final authority. But, but apart from those difficult circumstances, apart from those kinds of situations, we're talking about in ordinary marriages, where we're just learning how to get along. We're learning how to live together. We're learning how to wrestle through struggles and disappointments and disagreements. In these ordinary, normal, Christian, faithful relationships, God always calls the husband to be the head of his wife. And so if God has ordered marriage this way from the very beginning, by the way, who, who invented marriage? Who thought it up? Did God? define? The, the, if God invented marriage, does he get to define what it is? I think so. I think he gets to do that. He gets to say what it is and define it. If this is the way he orders marriage, then a husband can only be pleasing to God by being a husband. And a wife can only be herself and she can only find herself by being a wife. She doesn't serve her wife or her family. She doesn't serve her family or, or her husband by striving to be someone else. She doesn't, she doesn't find herself in trying to imitate man or become a man. All of us, men and women, we will never find joy. We will never be at rest. We will never find contentment or peace as long as we're in rebellion against God's created order. There is only peace and joy and rest in submitting to God. Obey God's order and live, but don't refuse to, and you'll be at war with yourself. You'll be at war with creation. You're at war with God, and God always wins. Creation and his order always win. So that's his first appeal. The first appeal is to creation when he says, 
that the husband is the head of the wife. He's appealing, and, and later he quotes from Genesis. Um, so, so that's his first appeal. The second appeal that Paul makes is to redemption. He says that Christ is the head of the church and the savior of the body. This points us to the ministry of Jesus and his relationship to his church. You know, one significant component of the ministry of Jesus was his elevation of women. In, in the Gospels, women are the first to greet Jesus, the first to receive him, obviously, in the, in the womb. Uh, Mary and Elizabeth sing over Jesus, and, and women are among his disciples and friends. He doesn't shy away from talking to the woman at the well or healing women or touching women in a, in a healing way. He doesn't shy away from them, from speaking to them and teaching them. When, when his disciples abandon him, it's women who are at the cross. John was there. John didn't leave him. Everybody else left him. And then there were women there at the cross. There, the women are the ones who go to his tomb to anoint his body. Women were then the first witnesses of his resurrection. This all sounds very normal to us because we live in a Christian society where women are respected and where women are loved and cherished. But, but that's not been the case throughout the world. That's certainly not the case in history. And, and, and you just have to think, would, I, would you rather be a woman in a Christian culture or in a Muslim culture? Would you rather be a woman in a Christian culture or in a pagan culture? I think the, I think the answer is really clear. I'd rather, you'd rather be in a Christian culture. See, we take this all for granted, but Jesus' treatment of women was radically different, not only from the Jewish culture, but from the Greek and the Roman cultures as well. Jewish men had a prayer every morning. They said, God, I thank you that I was not made a woman, that I was not made a Gentile, that I was not made a slave. Now, I thank God. I thank God that he made me a man because I'm content in the frame and the duty and the calling and the roles that he assigned to me. I'm thankful. But that's not how they meant the prayer. Because how did they view slaves? How did they view Gentiles? They're talking about these are less than human. And God, I thank you that you didn't make me less than human. I thank, that you, I thank, you, didn't, I thank you that you didn't make me a woman because that would be less than a, a, a person made in your image. That's, that was just their mentality. In Jewish civil law at the time of Jesus, a woman was not a person but a thing. She was generally thought to be unclean all the time. Just, that's why she could only come so far into the temple. She had no legal rights. She was a possession of her husband to do with as he willed. And, and if you think that's bad, it was even worse in the Greek world. In the Greek world, the whole Greek way of life was in opposition to anything that we would consider normal family life with companionship of husband and wife. The Greek world was at war with marriage. Greek men expected their wives to run the house, to care for their legitimate children, but they found their companionship and they found their friendship and joy and pleasure elsewhere, not with their wives. By the time of Jesus, family life in Greece was nearly extinct. And a man's fidelity to one woman was absolutely gone. It was abso absolutely obliterated. Uh, it was a ridiculous idea to suggest that a Greek man would spend all of his life with one woman and only love her physically and emotionally and in every other way. That was completely gone. Now, if you think that's bad, it was worse yet in Rome. Roman culture was absolutely 
abjectly, tragically degenerate. The marriage bond in Rome was absolutely obliterated and disrespected. In the Roman Empire, a girl was completely under her father's power and a wife was completely under her husband's power. She had no identity of her own. She was his slave in Rome. In Rome, a woman uh, had no legal capacity. Her legal status, officially, her legal status was imbecilitas. What, what word do we get from imbecilitas? Well, imbecile. She's, she can't think for herself. She can't speak for herself. And that's, that was her legal status. So, so this is the culture. And these are the norms that Jesus steps into. And this is the Gentile world that Paul is writing to. Ephesus is not a Jewish city. It's not a Christian city. These are Greeks and Romans here and all other manner of ethnicities in Ephesus. It's not like Paul is writing these things into a world where there are all these, you know, liberated, fierce, fun females, right? Where, where these, these feminists are walking around and, and now the church comes along and destroys their self-worth and destroys their position in society. Much to the contrary, Jesus comes and what's so radical and what's so different about him is that he is elevating women. He's giving them a place. He's giving them uh, a, an identity and a role. When, when Paul writes to the Corinthian church and he says, let women keep silence in the churches, the controversial part of that is not that he tells them to be silent. The scandal is that they're in the ecclesia to begin with. That's the crazy part. They wouldn't have been there in Greece. Women would not have been invited to sit down with men in any other similar setting. But here in the church, women are integral. Women are essential. Women are equal before God, and they wouldn't have had that any other place in society. So the gospel orders, orders all of society, it orders human life. And one of the ways that Jesus did this was by liberating and elevating women. The Christian faith properly lived and taught respects and cherishes women. The church listens to her women. Women, in fact, show us what it means to be the bride of Christ. We look to faithful and godly women to show us all how to be subject to Jesus. Jesus, the Redeemer. This is, this is what Paul is showing us. By pointing us to redemption, he's showing us Jesus, the Redeemer, Jesus, the Savior, appreciated women. He loved them. And by appealing to redemption, he's pointing out that Jesus is not only the head of his bride, but he's also the Savior of his bride. Paul is setting up this parallel. So now, however you wanted to find the word submission, however you wanted to find subjection, however you wanted to find obedience within, within the relationship of man and wife, it finds its true definition in the relationship of Jesus and his church. And so, so what is the relationship between Jesus and his church? Well, Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the foundation. But he crowns his bride with glory. He crowns her with glory. He gives his church authority in the world, doesn't he? He said, I give you the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus hands the keys of the kingdom to his bride. He delegates to her great responsibilities. His headship over her doesn't obliterate her. It doesn't subjugate her. It doesn't turn her into a doormat. He elevates her. He, he honors her. Now, is she able to respond to him? Is she able to ask for things? Can, can, she, can she ask him for what she needs? 
Does, does he feel challenged or disrespected when she complains to him? No, absolutely not. He gave her the Psalter. Jesus gives to his church the Psalter, which are 150 of his favorite complaints. These are the complaints I want you to give me. 150 of them. Start there. And when you go through those, we'll talk. What do the Psalms say? How long, O Lord? How many times have your wife said that to you? How long is it going to take you to fix this? How long, O Lord? That's what, that's, that, these are the words Jesus gives to his church. How long? Why do the wicked prosper? Why do the heathen rage and people plot vain things? You see, these are the words he gives to his bride and he wants to hear her requests. He calls on her to voice her complaints. Jesus calls us today as the church to come before his presence. He has things to say to us. And just a few minutes, we have some things to say to him. We have some things that we're going to ask him to change in the world. And we've been singing the Psalms all day. We've been asking him to fix things and change things. This is what Jesus does for his bride. He invites her into his council chambers and he asks her, tell me what you want. Tell me what you need. So in the same way, in human marriage, the husband is the foundation. He's the bedrock. He's the ground floor. Like Christ, he is the cornerstone. Remember when we studied Jesus as the cornerstone in Ephesians, uh, what does a cornerstone do? It determines the location of the building. It determines the direction of the building it's gonna determine the shape of the building. And so all of these are true also of the husband. He is the initiator, he sets the pace, he sets the agenda, and like Jesus, if he is godly and faithful, he crowns his bride with glory. He hands her the keys. He gives her great responsibility. He doesn't obliterate her personality. He doesn't obliterate her identity. He doesn't oppress her. He doesn't suppress her. He elevates her and she is absolutely allowed to respond to him. And if he's smart, if he's wise, he will ask his godly wife what she thinks. He will seek her wisdom. He will drink from her cistern. Isn't that how Solomon puts it in Proverbs? He will drink from her cistern. Remember, wisdom is a lady in Proverbs. And you may not have met your wife at a well. Most of us didn't meet our wife at a well. But, but if your wife is faithful, she is a well of wisdom. If she's godly, she is a well of wisdom. The wise man listens to his wife's counsel and he only ignores her to his own hurt. At the same time, that's not to say that all women are naturally wells of godly feminine wisdom. There's not some built-in sanctity of femininity. That is absolutely false. Women can be cruel and mean and hateful and vindictive in all these ways. So a wife is a source of wisdom and refreshment to her husband only insofar as she is submissive to Jesus. And if she is submissive to Jesus, she will also be to her husband. She is crowned with glory, not when she tries to become a man. She is crowned with glory, not when she tries to undermine her husband or works against him or sets herself up as his adversary. She is crowned with glory when she follows him. A rebellious woman is not a well of wisdom. A contentious, combative woman is not a glory to her husband or to her home. A woman who is a gossip is not a source of godly instruction. You don't go to a gossip for insight. A woman who is full of criticism and a woman who's full of complaint and a woman who's never satisfied with anything uh, is, is not going to lead you in righteousness. A woman who has not learned contentment and gratitude cannot lead you to worship God. 
If you've read through Proverbs, you see how often the subject of a contentious and angry woman comes up. Why does that keep coming up? What what do the Proverbs say? Twice it says it's better to dwell in the corner of a housetop than in a house with a contentious woman. And you've seen that picture of a man before, like he's so cowed and he's so beat down, he's just just shivering in the corner, (laughs) corner of the attic just so he doesn't have to deal with that woman. It, that, that's said twice. Also in another place, uh, it says it's better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. Just better get out of the house and get out to the woods than to deal with a contentious and angry woman. Um, and, and then in one other place, it says a continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are, like, are alike, you know, just like water torture, just pecking and pecking and pecking. Now, ladies, you know that what the scriptures are describing here are reality. And the Bible isn't just picking on women because ladies, you know what it's like to deal with contentious women, right? (laughs) You know what a contentious woman is, how hard she is to deal with. Contentious women don't just make life selectively difficult for men. They make life difficult for everybody. And since this seems to keep coming up, why does this come up? Uh, in, the, in the Proverbs especially, it seems then that there is a kind of, a particular kind of feistiness, a contentiousness, a temptation to not exercise control over the tongue or control over the emotions that women have a particular tendency toward. Now, can men do that? Absolutely. Can men sin in all those ways that I just mentioned? Absolutely. Are there men that you'd rather be in the woods than in the same house with them? Absolutely. Absolutely. There are also sins that are, that are, are particular to men, right? Laziness, abdication of responsibility, lust, outbursts of anger. Can women sin in those ways? Sure they can. But men have a particular bent to those sins. And if you don't think that's so, you're not, you're not a very good student of human behavior. You know there are sins that men are more prone to than women. So, so men have a particular bent and women have a particular bent toward contentiousness, it seems in the testimony of the scriptures. There's this bent toward argument for the sake of argument, a bent toward escalating conflict. Why is that? Well, I've thought about that and wonder why does, why, I mean, it seems like Solomon's kind of picking on women, contentious women, contentious women, contentious women. I th- you think about it and you think men have a way of policing each other. Men have a way of disciplining each other. If a man doesn't learn how to discipline his mouth, another man will discipline it for him, right? That's that kind of, when men say stupid stuff and they pick ridiculous fights, sooner or later, you're going to run into somebody who will punch you in your stupid mouth. That will happen. And when he punches you in your stupid mouth, you're going to think, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Maybe I should put that a different way. And then you say, hey, you want to go get a beer? Thank you for that correction. And, and we work it out. Women are far less likely to police each other that way. So women have to learn self-control over their tongue a different way. And they have to cultivate soft hearts when receiving correction. Contentiousness, combativeness seals you off from the correction that you need to grow. It isolates you. Ladies, I understand. No, I don't understand it. I can't understand it. I can't imagine it. You have to give correction all day long. Wash your hands. Put down the toilet seat. 
pick up your plate, pick up your socks, get this stuff up, turn off the TV, give me the iPad. You know, you, all day long you're correcting. And when your husband gets home, you find out you're, you're correcting him too. I told you supper was at seven. I told you we had to do something Thursday night. I told you we put that over there. And, and you're correcting and you're correcting. And it, and it becomes very easy for you to correct. It becomes very easy for you to offer correction. How good are you at receiving correction when it comes back at you? See, do you receive it without blowing up? Do you receive it without defensiveness? Do you receive it without clamming up and, and, and removing yourself from it? You see, if you can't receive correction without responding violently, uh, the person who tried to correct you not only is never gonna come around again, it's not gonna be your friend, you've ruined the relationship maybe forever, and, and you're not gonna receive the stuff you need to reform your life. You're not going to receive the stuff you need to make correction. Be soft toward correction. You have to offer it every day. And again, I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you don't pull out your hair and go run screaming into the street and say, I'm done with everything. Climb a tree and say, I'm not coming down. These people are driving me crazy. I don't know how you do it. You got, you got to give it. You got to learn how to take it. Now, see, this is just one component of a wife's duty, but it's a big one. This is one pretty important area, this contentiousness and combativeness. This is one area where, where lots of women typically fail to obey the Lord in their marriages with regard to their husbands. No one can cut a husband to shreds like his wife. No one can demoralize a man like his wife. No one can demotivate him or dress him down like his wife. Does Jesus do that, uh, receive that from the church? Does the church do that for Jesus? Does, does the church purposely go out of her way to embarrass Jesus? Does the church demoralize him, undermine him, disrespect him, contradict him? Ladies, you have to be extra conscious of this. No one can make a man feel more worthless than a wife who comes at him with more complaints than he can swat away and then responds by withholding her affection and companionship from him and stiffs arm, stiff arms all his attempts to make it right, to make things better. I've, I've met so many men who are just absolutely gutted, who are absolutely emasculated by verbal ill treatment from their wives because they're married to contentious women. No doubt these men have contributed to their own sins. I'm not denying that. We're gonna talk about that next week, the particular sins and duties of men. By the way, Paul spends three times as much space on men as he does women, but that's next week. But see, men don't get off the hook. Men have their own sins. We have our own things, very real, desperately wicked problems that we have to deal with and terrible, awful attitudes toward our wives that we have to get straight. Men don't get let off the hook, but often women do get let off the hook, especially in this environment where there's this holy sanctity to womanhood and they don't get called on their sins. And when they do get called on their sins, they blow up and they get angry and you can't talk to them. Wives, in order to be obedient to the Lord Jesus, and in order for your marriage to be pleasing to God, you must submit to your husbands as to the Lord. That means you must be careful with your words. Choose your words carefully. Guard your thoughts and guard your heart against bitterness toward your husband and resentment toward your children. Think before you speak. Use your words to de-escalate rather than to escalate conflict. Bring rest 
and refreshment with your words. Speak words designed to edify and encourage and be receptive to correction. What the apostle is showing us here is that this is how God ordered marriage at creation and in redemption. And these words are Paul's words to a particular congregation. But we all know that scripture is inspired. These are Jesus's words. Jesus says this. Jesus says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Does Jesus hate women? Is that why he's saying this? Because he hates women. Does Jesus disrespect women? No. So if you think this is onerous or antiquated, if you think this is oppressive, who is telling you that? Who wants you to argue with the words of Jesus? Satan attacks God's word because Satan hates marriage. He hates men to initiate and he hates for men, uh, women to respond. He hates for men to die for their wives the way Jesus dies for the church. And he hates for women to love and obey their husbands the way the church loves and obeys Jesus. Satan hates marriage and wants to destroy it because he hates godly offspring. He hates it also because when it works and when it's holy, it reveals something about God that Satan doesn't want revealed. And he wants you to be miserable. He doesn't want you to have life. He wants, Satan wants men to act like women and he wants women to act like men. Satan wants to twist the roles into the worst possible caricatures. He wants you to think that Jesus is a tyrant who wants to keep us ignorant doormats. And he wants the church to be a high-strung, rebellious harpy. That's what he wants. That's what Satan wants. And so he twists marriage into a picture of that. And beautiful, godly, obedient marriage undermines Satan's agenda. So, brothers and sisters, fight Satan's lies with marriages that reflect Jesus and his bride. There's so much to say, but we'll come back next week. Let's pray. Father, we pray and ask for your mercies as we learn how to live together as husbands and wives. Father, give us men who know how to love and cherish their wives and elevate them and crown them with glory by dying for them and truly leading and keeping and protecting them. Father, give us women who, who receive that crown of glory and live up to it with uh, patient and humble spirits. Free us all from bitterness. Free us all from resentment. Free us all from hatred. Uh, help us to light a match on the big piles of, of, of past sins that we keep lying around and keep bringing up and holding against each other. Clean out our lives and clean out our marriages and renew us in holy, happy, faithful love for one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And now let us continue worshiping God by bringing him his